0: Especially, as always, for our guests, uh, reminder about our gold sheets, and definitely are uh, very much invited to use that during uh, our Bible study today. Um, if you think about the 20th century, that would be the 1900s. Um, you'd have to admit that there were some things developed and invented in the 20th century that are probably some of the most life-changing, altering things that uh, that we have. Um, as an example of how much changed, uh, from the beginning of the 1900s, if you have grandparents, great-grandparents who lived at that time, they, they began the century getting around on horse. Just 100 years later, we got cars and airplanes and rocket ships to the moon, right? In the 20th century, there was an amazing development when it comes to technology, things that, you, know, endured the century, right? and into this new one: the radio. TV, and then color TV, and then HD TV, and then flat screen TVs along with HD TV. Cell phones, computers, VCRs, and then DVD players, and then Blu-ray. I mean, it's just amazing. Al Gore even had time to invent the internet in the 20th century. I mean, it's just amazing the things that endured through the century. But there are other inventions that didn't endure. As we get to think about things that have lasting power, um, I wanted to just bring up some of these uh, things that I found from a Life magazine article from many, many years ago, things that didn't endure the 20th century. Um, Nowadays, we know how much um, smoking is bad for our health. I didn't live in the 50s, but it seems to me like maybe their goal then was to see just how much nicotine you can get in your body at the same time. And so this is not like a joke. This really was something someone invented. This is a way to, you know, end your life. No, um, to, uh, to smoke a whole pack of cigarettes at the very same time. Didn't catch on, thankfully. Didn't endure the century. Um, long before they had iPods and, and cell phones that you could watch a TV show on or YouTube on, someone had the smart idea of inventing TV glasses, um, which... Um, You know, might be good at a Halloween party, um, but as far as them being good to use, I can understand, too, why it didn't make it through the century. And finally, you think of homes back uh, 70 years ago, a lot smaller than they are today, and most families had more kids. So somewhat brought up the idea of, you kind of saw it earlier, a baby cage. Um, which, if you notice, you, you hook this cool invention on to the outside of your window, whether you're in a high-rise apartment or uh, in a home, and, um, you know, you have more space for the family. <laughs> which, you know, sometimes, you know, I kind of go by the motto that sometimes high reward requires high risk. And this is certainly um, high risk. Now, you look at all these things, and you have... No question as to why they did not survive the century. These things that were destined to fail. You know, if you would have looked at Christianity in the days following the death of Jesus, you would have thought the very same thing that Christianity in its very early stages after Jesus died had more in common with the failure of the baby cage, potentially, than with the success of the personal computer. The details around it seemed objectively like it would not make it through the first century. Here are some of those. The leaders that were left had no power, no influence, no army, nothing. In fact, they had no leader. The leader of their faith only ministered for three years, his three-year ministry, and then he died, and, and he, as you and I know, ascended into heaven, but he wasn't with them any longer. And on top of all of that, they lived in an empire that did not want Christianity or Christians to succeed. And they did whatever they could to persecute Christians and kill as many as they could so as to squelch the message of Jesus it seems from outward circumstances that Christianity should have gone the way of TV glasses. But here we are. 2,000 years later, and you and I have gathered in the name of the same Jesus that those first Christians in the day after Easter gathered in that same name. That you and I, 2,000 years later, are benefits of the fact that the message of Jesus was not squelched, that survived the first century all the way into the 21st century. How does that happen? Well, it's a God thing. But God has not left us with just to say it was a God thing. In the scripture, he gives us details as how he worked and through whom and what he worked. And what a great way to end this series about Easter, to consider where the church and we, the church, go from here and what God has called us to do. Now, as a little bit of review... Initially, the events of Good Friday and Easter Sunday um, really were quite confusing to Jesus' followers. Um, You might remember us talking on Easter about how Jesus definitely clued them in that he would die, but that I compared the disciples to, like, what little kids do when they don't want to hear something. They kind of, you know, put their fingers in their ears and say, you know, I'm not listening, la, 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 right? The disciples didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to consider that their leader would be gone, and much less the fact that they saw him do miracles. And, and how would anyone kill Jesus anyway? And so that was part of it. We don't know all of it, but they were confused. They didn't understand that Jesus had to die. And so their reaction was to huddle in a room with the doors locked, wondering and thinking that they would be the next, to be executed by the Romans and ultimately by the Jews. And that's where we pick it up. It's Easter Sunday evening. It's uh, before the section we studied a number of weeks ago and Pastor Steve taught us about Thomas. This is before the Thomas event. John chapter 20, beginning with verse 19. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, this is Easter evening. Jesus came, stood among them, and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them it was him. He showed them his hands inside. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. One of the things we've been really stressing in this series is to know that while the Bible does tell us how to live as parents and as workers and as kids, that at the heart and core of Christianity is not a philosophy of living. It's not a style of living that's going to make God love you more. But at the heart and core of our faith, even though there is these other ways that we can live our life, at the heart and core is an event of history. That God's Son, Jesus, came to this earth, lived the perfect life, died so that we don't have to eternally and rose again so that we have hope, so that we have the forgiveness of every sin. And so as Jesus appears into this room, you can bet that these guys who would, in later years, write parts of the Bible, they didn't understand every point of Christian theology or doctrine. But something changed Purely for the fact that Jesus was alive. And while we continue to mature in our faith, I pray, may we never be so mature that we don't get our greatest comfort from the mere fact that Jesus is alive. And he tells them, peace is yours. Now that's ironic, if you think about it. Because they got the door locked, Because they have zero peace at all. And yet Jesus' first words is, peace be with you. I think it would be good to unpack what biblical peace is all about a little bit. Um, Maybe a good definition for peace could be living life at rest. Now, I'm not saying, uh, kids, that Living at peace means to play video games all day and not do what you're supposed to do because, hey, mom, dad, I'm living life at rest. I'm not talking about uh, quitting your job, putting your feet up on the coffee table and and living at peace life. It's not clearly what we're talking about. Uh, Life at rest isn't so much the body at rest. It's not so much that you don't have anything to do. Uh, Peace means that your heart is at rest that your mind has a sense of calmness to it, that your soul can be at peace. And, And I know we live in a world that wants this, because I want it, and because I also see millions of dollars being spent on trying to find peace. You know, weekends at a spa of some sort, or lotions, or oils, or certain CD music that helps you be more calm and peaceful. There's even ways to arrange your furniture, I have found out, that is supposed to bring a little more peace to your life and room. And I'm not saying that we can't do any of these things. What I am saying is that you know they don't last. That if you've tried to find peace through these sorts of things, they work for a very short time. But when you're job is lost and you're not sure where to, the, the money's going to come for the bills, what um, what lotion are you going to buy that's going to help you be at peace? When When the mother or father or friend that you would always call during that certain type of situation is no longer available to call because they're home in heaven, what CD is going to make you at peace with that. When a relationship uh, that uh, is very important to you isn't the way you want it to be, what furniture arrangement is going is to help? They're not. But the greatest peace, even in the midst of disciples who were wondering if their very life were at, was at risk, was the peace that Jesus brought them, which is the fact that he was alive. And because he's alive, funerals are still sad, but they, they don't overpower you. That not being able to pay the bills is a concern and maybe even a worry, but that you, even in the midst of any struggle, can have a calmness of heart, knowing that Jesus has taken care of our biggest deal, which is our sin, and has won for us a home of heaven. In fact, uh, Paul writes this way, about the peace that we have in Romans chapter 8. He said, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Unlikely that the church that Christianity would make it out of the first century. And yet, here we are. How did that happen? Yes, it's a God thing. But what means did God use? And it is, I believe, absolutely awesome to see that in the very same breath that Jesus says, your soul can be at rest, peace be with you. He doesn't tell them, now go build a spot nearby the Sea of Galilee, kick your feet up, and live your, out your peace that way, okay? Or however else you might find earthly peace, or a person might. Instead, he gives them something that seems to be almost contradictory to peace, but ultimately is the way that we are as Christians to live and to act is meant to be our priority. Listen, verse 21. Again, Jesus said in that room, Peace be with you, and then... In the very same breath, as the Father has sent me, peaceful people, I am now sending you. And with that, he breathed on them. That sounds kind of weird, like I don't want Jesus breathing on me. It doesn't mean that at all. It means that he gave them a special presence of the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven you don't forgive them, that is, if they're unrepentant, then I, God, has not forgiven them. They're not, they're not forgiven. And from this point forward, these men and women were changed people. If you want, you know, more outward proof that Easter actually happened, look no further than the life of the disciples, huh? Their first response to uh, Good Friday was to huddle in a room and lock the door. But once they saw Jesus was alive, that this miracle actually happened and what it meant for them, these were some of the most bold Christians who have ever lived, and they gave up so much for him. They gave up their homes to travel, they gave up an easy life for one filled with lots of persecution, They put themselves second and put Jesus and his mission first, even to the point of more than half of them being killed for their faith. Acts chapter 5 says this about their attitude. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. What they were all about. Jesus and then the work that God had given them to do, which was to be fertilizer spreaders, huh? To spread that message that has totally changed your life to others. See, God has no plan B. And God can do anything, but scripturally there is no plan B. The only way, through the Spirit's work through them, that the Christianity would get out of the first century is for Christians to share it with others. And the only way that your kids and your grandkids and the world that we live in is going to know Jesus is the Holy Spirit working through us. We are the world's hope. When it comes to knowing Jesus and people, the people we love or the people we are acquainted with, of being in heaven someday if they do not know Jesus, we are the ones tasked with this awesome work. And it's an honor and it's a privilege, but yet there's something in us that sometimes just fights against it. Because it's not easy. It's not something that comes easily. And I think there's a lot of reasons for this, but one of the one of the them that I've picked up on sometimes in my own life is that we tend to naturally drift towards, first of all, thinking of me or my family, and then thinking of others later. That in fact I think that the, the main most popular common idol in our country is not Allah or Buddha or even materialism or money. That the greatest idol in our country is something different for you than me. Mine is spelled B-E-N, all right? And the idol that you need to most fight against as we consider what I want to do and what God has called me to do as Christians is the idol of self. And this natural tendency to think of ourselves. And this whole idea of me, me, me has, in our world, crept into the church too. huh? That our first reaction at times is me, me, me. And then secondly, the church at times can think about others. It's something we, we naturally drift to towards and in the church too. Something that we need to continually be aware of, of how Easter has changed our perspective and what work we have been given to do together. Here's what I think. Here's what I know. That for those early Christians, for them to be bold, it meant being willing to suffer death, potentially rather than to not stop spreading the message. To allow that uncomfortability to be there. And to do the work. In some ways, ours is not, our difficulties are not quite as drastic, but still at times just as hard. For us, I think, One of the ways that we need to be bold is to constantly fight against the natural tendency to think of ourselves first and to be able to, at times, be uncomfortable with first considering how is it that we who are sanctified and saved and at peace with our soul can now put ourselves second and share that same peace with others. How can we in the way that we um, work together, in the way that we do things as a congregation, how can we, in our individual lives, work on putting ourselves second because we're saved and realize that we want those around us to have that same peace because that's what we're called for, because that's what Jesus has called us to. By God's grace, I, I think this is something that we as a congregation have done? I think we have been blessed as a congregation because of that by God. Do I think that we have it all solved? That I have it all solved? That you have it all solved in your personal lives? I think it's something that we daily need to be bold about. And to draw the line where scripture draws the line, but then to do the work that scripture says we are to do. In the late 1800s in uh, South Africa, there was a a conflict between Dutch settlers and uh, the English who were trying to colonize that area. Some of you who are history buffs might uh, recognize this conflict as the Boer War or the Boer Wars. Well, after the Boer Wars in the late 1800s, England really didn't have a lot of uh, battle. They had relative peace. until about World War I and World War II, until that time frame. And as World War I and World War II was coming upon them, um, they were in an effort to have more um, artillery, uh, looking at using some of the artillery that was used 50, 60, 70 years ago in the Boer Wars. And there was one part of light, one part of the artillery, a piece of light artillery that just confused the soldiers at the time. And the reason why they were so confused is that they were always taught to use this particular artillery with five people, and yet to actually run the artillery, it only took three. And two guys were just kind of there standing. And so they looked into this a little bit and asked around, why five? Why five? Is there a good reason? If there is, we'll continue to do this. And they found an old general who took a look at the picture and their concern, and he laughed because he told them that the reason there were five guys is because back when this uh, particular artillery was created, there were horses, and the two guys they're now just standing, were the ones holding the horses. But they just kept the guys, even though there were no horses anymore. And they were just kind of placeholders. My friends, I think that it's easy to get comfortable in life and that the natural drift that we have can lead us towards, in our personal lives or church life, of being just merely placeholders. And yet, God has called us through Easter and because of Easter to something awesome, something awesome that we have been doing together, something awesome that we can continue to do as we see God put opportunities in front of us as a church, as individuals that the message of the gospel survived the first century because God worked through his people. And the message of Jesus will survive until he returns because God still works through his people. And to that end, we also are joyful to receive God's Holy Spirit as we do that work together.